This is the word of God. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who does who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious, yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. The religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Word of the Lord, amen. Please be seated. Thanks, John. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if there's anything that James pleads for in his little book, his little letter, it's reality and religion. I know back in the day, sometimes when I'd ask somebody, hey, how you doing? They'd say, keeping it real. Right? <laughs> well, James would want to know how real you keeping it when it comes to your relationship with God. James, like any good friend, is deeply concerned that we have the right kind of religion. The kind that is pure and faultless and that God our Father accepts. And we're, you'll know by the end of this message what kind of religion you got. James is like that good friend who is a, sh a straight shooter. He's going to tell you the truth. When you ask his opinion, he's going to give it to you in love. That doesn't mean it don't sting sometimes, but he's going to give it to you. you no, know, it's like when you go out, you ever go out? Now, I know some of you don't have beards. It looks like most of you don't. But, you know, sometimes I'll be eating out or something, and I'm laughing, having a good time, making a kind of a fool of myself. And then I go into the bathroom. You already know where I'm going, right? And I got this big old nasty thing. I'm, and I'm like, why didn't somebody tell me? Like, so I go back out. I'm like, not happy. And I'll go to the table like, Seriously? Like, none of you are a true friend that's going to say, dude, man, you got this, you know. But why don't we do that? A lot of times we feel like, oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Listen, hurt my feelings a little bit so that I'm not hurt a lot by totally making a fool of myself. Can I get an amen? amen. That's James. James ain't going to let you have that, that oogie-looking thing on your face. He's going to say, hey, man, take care of that thing. James is very concerned that we're not deceived. As a matter of fact, three times, within, I think the, only within one chapter, he says, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. He mentions it a number of times. So one of the times he says that, and this is important to get the context, he says this in verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and what? So deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Now, I'm going to preach. In Reformed Presbyterian circles, we put a high value, and rightly so, on the truth. 
We want to make sure we have sound doctrine, that we believe what the Bible teaches and not errors. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to believe what's right. I don't want to believe a lie. You want to believe a lie? So we're absolutely right in taking great pains to make sure we understand what the scriptures say. However, the problem with us Presbyterians sometimes is we have this crazy idea that our spiritual uh, growth or spirituality is measured by how much truth we know. So the more truth we stuff in our head, we start getting kind of puffed up like eggheads. You know, like a stick figure with a great big head. But James says, it's not how much truth you know that matters. What? It's how much truth you put into practice. I want to see how much truth you do. Because so many times we think we're way over here in spirituality, man. We're, we're up in the clouds. And in reality, we haven't gotten to first base yet. Because it's all here. Certainly, we got to listen to the word so we know what it says. But if you don't go to the next step, James says... You're not even a Padawan learner. Forgetting about an expert. So that could be a huge problem. And James, want to make, James loves us enough to let us know. You know, like I mentioned a few weeks back, that old 80s commercial, where's the beef? He wants to see it. All right, so what James goes on to say, and this is important to see the context, he says this. He says, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. And then in our, particularly this morning, we're going to just deal with verses 26 to 27. Then James gives us three examples or illustrations of what putting the word into practice will look like. He doesn't leave us wondering. We're not, we don't have to wonder. I wonder what it means to put the word into practice. He's going to tell us very clearly what it is to put the word into practice. What does he tell us? He says, we need to do three things if we want to practice true, pure religion, faultless religion that God our Father accepts. What are they? They are to watch our mouths. That's the first one. Like when your mom used to say, watch your mouth. Well, that's what James is saying. Secondly, watch out for orphans and widows. That's those who are weak, the most vulnerable, the ones who need help. And the last thing we need to watch is our lives. We've got to watch that we don't become worldly and stained and polluted by the world around us that does not march to the beat of Jesus, but march, marches to their own drumbeat. Those are the three things if we want genuine religion. I want to uh, make one point here that's important to see uh, before I go any further, and that's this. James is not giving us an exhaustive definition of what true religion is. We misunderstand that and we think, oh, it's only these three things and then we're, you know, we're, no. What James is saying is this, because he mentions all the other things that quote-unquote religious people would do throughout his epistle. We have to be hearers of the word, right? Amen. Got to go to church. Uh, later on he talks about um, praying for one another. He talks about um, having the elders pray so he expects you to go and be a part of a local church. Later on he says pray. So pray. Religious people are praying people. But rather, this is what James is saying. James is saying you can have all those other religious things. If you don't have these other three things, it's worthless. That's what he's saying. It took me a while. I've preached this text a number of times and finally I had this whole, you know, bah! that's what he's saying. So that's where we're at. And we're going to take a look at this and those three things that we need to have. Because listen, in case you're falling asleep, this is, this is what hits me about this. 
If you claim to follow Jesus Christ, and you've been saved by his blood, then I would think as a child of God, you'd want to know what kind of religion your father accepts. Wouldn't you think? And it's wonderful we have right here. This is the kind of religion God accepts your father. So we should have our antennas up. We should be ready to listen. First thing he says, watch your mouth. Look at verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious, we'll talk about the way he says that in a moment, and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. He doesn't say, well, it's not as helpful, it's somewhat helpful. He says, it's worthless. Worth niente, nada, nil, nothing. Why? Why of all things did that make the top three that you have to have? Think about this. What's the, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the one that's second only to that one? Love your neighbors yourself. The damage we do to one another with this little stinking muscle that's in our mouths. We are called by our gracious God, our holy God, to love each other the way we love ourselves. Actually, Jesus says love each other the way I've loved you, right? And yet when we take our tongue and we tear one another down, we destroy one another's reputations, we spread lies, we gossip, that does such damage and sometimes irreparable. The power that the tongue has. There's hardly anything else that's as powerful as it, as it is. It's a huge theme in James's letter. Another aha moment I had when I rediscovered this text is that these three things that James mentions, watching our mouths, watching out for widows and orphans, and watching our lives, he develops that in the rest of his book. So he has tons to say about the tongue in the rest of the book. Don't worry, I'll spare you this morning. I'm not going to read it all. But you can read it on, in, on uh, look at it yourselves. Uh, for instance, chapter 3, 1 to 12, chapter 4, 11 to 17, chapter 5, 9, he gets into it. Here's the thing I've, I've noticed over the years. Uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been a Christian since 1986, and I've been a pastor since 96. So I've noticed this. We, have, we serve up roasted pastor for dinner, and we sit there and rip on our brothers and sisters in Christ at the table in front of our children. We expose all the flaws, all the hypocrisy, all the problems in the, in the church, and then we wonder when our kids become teenagers, they won't darken the door of a church. Interesting. Or our kids will hear us ripping on our spouse. And then we wonder why they become disrespectful. Or we sit there and, and we will hear a rumor that we haven't even verified yet. Hello, Facebook. right? We spread it around and then we end up taking a businessman who is trying to provide for his family and no one will any longer go to his establishment because of the lie and that poor man now can't take care of his family because of our mouth. Proverbs puts it this way. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. On the positive side of that, words have a powerful way of encouraging. When you talk to children with encouraging words, when you fan into flame, the little sparks. You know, why is it that it's so hard for us sometimes to give a kind word? You ever notice that? Like sometimes you're finding you're working hard to like say a nice thing to a brother or a friend or a child or a spouse. 
A Greek philosopher asked his servant to provide the best, best dish possible. The servant prepared a dish of tongue. Some people do that. They're like, they take the tongue, they think it's like the best part. Yeah, see, look, we got one. It's so good. I'm like, I, just the thought of it is like, ah. But anyway, so he prepared the dish of tongue. But listen to what he said. A little different than what you, uh, you folks are saying. He says, it is the best of all dishes because with it we may bless and communicate happiness, dispel sorrow, remove despair, cheer the faint-hearted, inspire the discouraged, and say a hundred other things to uplift mankind. Later, the philosopher asked his servant to provide a dish uh, uh, the worst dish that he could think of. Guess what appeared? A dish, a dish of tongue. And the servant said, it is the worst, because with it we may curse and break human hearts, destroy reputations, promote discord and strife, set families, communities, and nations at war with each other. So then what's the answer? I think what we have to see here is James is talking to people. This is very, very important. He's talking to people who consider themselves religious. You see where he's going with this? The people who kind of look down on everybody else in the world because, hey, at least I ain't like those heathen. I don't cheat on my wife. I don't cuss or curse. Yeah, but you go around with those loose lips and do more destruction. And I think what James is doing is he's showing us an important thing that the church needs to know. The gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners and rose again for sinners, is not just for those evil, dark people out there. It's for you and me. Because when we start feeling high and holy and righteous, all we got to do is try to, try to tame our tongue for a day. And I don't know about you, you know where I find myself? On my face. Saying, Lord Jesus, I did it again. Have mercy on me. It drives us. James, like a good friend, drives us to the cross, doesn't he? He shows us that uh, maybe we're not as far along as we thought we were. And maybe, just maybe, we need the mercy of Jesus just like everybody else. So it shows us our desperate need for Jesus. This is what we need to do positively before I go to the next thing, and that's this. It comes from Psalm 141, verse 3. I think this is a wonderful prayer for you and I to get in the habit of praying and meaning. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Amen? So that's the first ingredient of true uh, um, and pure and faultless religion that God our Father accepts and that we need to look out for. Second one, watch out for orphans and widows. <laughs> you know what's going to happen now, don't you? All right, look at verse 27. Religion and, uh, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, we sang about it earlier, and it was lots of fun to do that. Um, and we took a line out of this psalm I'm about to uh, read to you um, to put into the song. And this is what Psalm 68, 5-6 says about God. He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Listen, God has always been that. 
He was that in the Old Covenant, and he's that in the New Covenant. And guess what God always has called his people to do? Imitate him. You know, my dad, um, um, with all his flaws, he was a, a pretty good man. And sometimes I grew up saying, I want to be like him. Right? Well, God's children, saved by the blood of Jesus, God so loved us, he gave his son, we should want to be like him. And if we're going to be like him, then we got to look, we cannot overlook the broken, the weak, the marginalized, those who don't have any capital in this world, who don't have enough resources to help themselves. You know, and the other thing I'm I going to preach here, it's not just for new city type churches. You know, I'm, when people say, well, that's your thing. First of all, I'm no expert. I need a lot of work on it. But second of all, this is for all God's people. No matter what your name of your church is, what denomination, if you're really followers of Jesus, this is what you need to be about. This is the family business. When I first... So in other words, it's the normal Christian life. Like some people say, oh, dude, what you're doing, man, you're like green beret. And I'm like, it's just being a Christian. You can say amen there. Go ahead. <laughs> all right, all right. So when I, when I was first coming here, and I was thinking about the type of church I wanted to plant, and, and you know, you, us church planners have to come up with a vision and a purpose statement and ministry plan. Well, I'm, I'm wrestling to, to like, you know, recreate the wheel. So I thought, you know, I need a little help. So I called up Barry Henning. Yeah, Barry in St. Louis. He's, the, he's now the, the pastor emeritus or, or pastor of foreign missions of, of uh, New City in St. Louis. Back then he was just the senior pastor. And I said, look, Barry, I'm really you know, struggling with just getting this vision statement down. And, um, what do you, you know, give me some advice. And he said to me, look, Santo, where was Jesus going when he was here? What did he spend his time? Read the Gospels. What did he do? Healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, Loved on the widows, the weak. The gospel was preached to who? The poor. He said, just go do that stuff in, the, in Atlantic City, and God will be there. That's what God is already doing. Join him. And I was like, I wasn't expecting that answer. I was like, well, that's that. It was so cool. I'm like, it's finished. Next. You know, I think of the story to me that... that um, hits me. One of the stories, there's so many things in the Gospels, but um, for time's sake, I think of that wonderful story in Luke 7. It's very touching. Jesus comes upon and his disciples, and there was a crowd with him. He comes upon a funeral procession. You may remember this. They were carrying a dead boy, man, young man. And it was, uh, the widow was there. It was her only son, and she was a widow. And it says in the text, this is, what, this is where you don't expect it. It says, and Jesus had compassion on who? The widow. Not the dead man. He had compassion on the widow. He touched the coffin, which, by the way, you don't do that as a Jew. He touched the coffin as it to stop it. And he said, my son, I say to you, get up. And the boy gets up alive. And, and it's interesting in the text, and he says, and he gave the boy back what? To his mother. He is a defender of widows. Our God loves the weak. He loves the hurting. And he has a special place, as it were, in his heart for them. And we, as his people, if we consider ourselves religious, which, by the way, the Bible doesn't use the term religious very often. 
It's only used four times in the New Testament the way it's used here. And only twi it's twice in James and two in other places. And it's not used the way we would normally use it. Like we, Because Christianity, listen, is not a religion. It's a revelation from God to man. Religion is, is man's way of trying to earn God's favor, trying to get to heaven, trying to work his way. That's all the other world religions. Christianity is God coming to man and by grace saving man, doing what man can't do for himself. So he's saying you want to really practice true religion, then certainly watch your tongue, watch out for uh, widows and orphans in their distress. And someone once said this, and there's many ways of saying this. I've seen people, different quotes, um, so it's hard to figure out who exactly said this first. I'm sure it's been said many times. But this is a neat thing. You can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. Wow. Tell me that's not convicting. And I know, especially of uh, those of us who are church planners, you know, we have to do networking and we need resources. And I think what I always have to remind myself and my brothers, look, we treat everybody the same. We can't be special to our donors. And then someone comes with a need and be like, oh, I, I, you can't do nothing for me. And isn't that the problem with widows and orphans? They have nothing to give you. Of course, we know those of us who work, they have a lot more than, than people know to give. It's just not the kind of currency this world appreciates. Like my wife and I were kidding around. I said, well, I can barter with so-and-so. And Mary goes, what do we got to barter with? We can't do nothing. Well, you know what? The poor, James says, have been blessed with richness of faith. And we got a lot to learn from them. Don't ever forget that. Isaiah 58.9, we just read it before. If you do away with the yoke of oppression with the pointing finger and malicious talk. Where did we hear that before? And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Where did we hear that before? Then your light will rise in the darkness and your light will become like the noonday. If you want religion that is pure and faultless, that God our Father accepts, then we need to watch our tongues. We need to watch after widows and orphans in their distress. And by the way, it's funny how we can get real uh, particular um, James is not saying only widows and orphans. That is a heading for all who are in need and who are weak and marginalized. Because the rest of his book, he deals with the poor. He deals with not um, those, remember, a poor man comes in and you show favoritism. So it's, it's really a heading. So last thing, we need to watch our lives if we want to practice true religion that God our Father accepts. Look at verse 27 again. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphan and widows in, the, in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Listen, James is saying we have to be careful to strive to walk in godliness and to keep ourselves, as the NASB puts it, from being stained by the world. Now here's the thing. Just as, it, as serving the poor uh, isn't just for left, uh, left liberals, left-wing liberals, keeping ourselves pure and dealing with holiness and godliness is not just for right-wing crazies. So often people try to, to, to pit those two against, should we have social action or should we have personal piety? And you know the answer to that. Yes. 
Should we have a left leg or a right leg? I don't know about you, but I'm glad I got two. Should we care for others and live out, and live out our faith in actions? Yes. Should we care for our own souls so we're not polluted by the world, so we walk in holiness and righteousness like the God who called us? Absolutely. Stop making enemies of friends. We need to engage in social justice and we need to be taking care of how we walk with God in the world. Uh, D.L. Moody says this, the place for the ship is in the sea, but God help the ship if the sea gets in it. And what he means by that is the place for the church is in the world, right? We need to be in the world so we can be a blessing. But woe to the church if the world gets in the, chur in the church. And I think we have a huge problem in our country with that right now. We follow the cues of the world instead of the world following the cues of us. Instead of being the salt and light. We're afraid. Listen, this is the big sin. What might happen? We might offend somebody. The cross is an offense. Listen, it convicts us, right? The message I've been preaching so far, it's not warm and fuzzy, is it? How much more when we go out in the world where we used to be and we say, hey, we no longer live like this. We no longer take cues from others in terms of um, who want to please themselves and have their own values. We take our cues from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. We fear incurring men's wrath and displeasure more than we fear God's wrath and his displeasure. That's the bottom line. James has this to say in 4.4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Listen, here's the question. It's a simple one James is asking because he doesn't want you to deceive yourself. Who do you want to be friends with? You've got a choice. You want to have God as your friend or do you want the world to, to accept you? One or the other. They're not, you can't have both. The other two things, you can have both, social justice and piety. This, you can't have both. This is an either-or situation. And I guess what James is saying is, you better pick your enemies good, well, who you're going to have on the other side. Think about it. What do we really have to offer orphans and widows if we allow the world to defile us? Sometimes Bible-believing Christians can be accused of worrying so much about their own purity that they stay in their own holy huddles and let the world go to pots. And James preaches against that. But he's just as strongly against the idea of believers allowing themselves to be so polluted by the world that we have nothing to offer the world because we're just like them. Look, so that's the question. We talk about bringing people to the gospel so that they'll be saved. But what are we saving them to if we're exactly like them? Dr. Tony Evans puts it this way. Don't be defiled by the world. He says, if a person has to walk around, or was to walk around, with a big red stain on his shirt, I like this, because my wife's going to love this illustration, most of us would notice. We'd be thinking things like, man, he's got a stain on his shirt, or, boy, how could his wife let him go out knowing he looks like that? Listen, you want to know how much my love, my wife loves me? I was trying to keep the stained shirt, 
and, and she ran out with the scissors and cut it <laughs> right in front of me and threw it in the garbage. I'm like, man, that was my favorite shirt. She's like, I cannot let you go out with it. But anyway, <laughs> just say, it made me think of that. But his point, he says here, the stain would become a distraction. It would do, or, do more than damage that one spot. It would detract from the impression of the whole person. My wife knows these things. And then he says this, some Christians brag because their whole life isn't filthy. Your whole life doesn't have to be filthy. All you need is a stain. I've heard professed believers say the gospel has nothing to do with sexuality, but it has all to do with helping the poor. No, I'm sorry. The gospel has to do with all of our life. The totality, both of those things. What does God's word say about it? That's what we got to ask. And then by his grace, we need to strive to live in a way that pleases him. Look, summarize it this way. We care about the weak and the needy because God is the God of the fatherless and the widow. Psalm 68, 5, 6. So why do we care about walking in holiness and righteousness and not being stained by the world? Because the Lord our God is holy. He's holy. So we're called to be holy. He cares about the, the poor and the weak and the helpless. We care about the poor and the weak and the helpless. Someone asked Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman, what do you consider a good rule of life? This was good. I like this one a lot. He replied, this rule governs my life. Listen, this is good advice. Anything that dims my vision of Christ or takes away my taste for Bible study or cramps my prayer life, or makes Christian work more difficult is wrong for me, and I must, as a Christian, turn away from it. You know, we get into this legalistic thing about what's worldly and what's not worldly. Oh, we had one drink. That's not the issue. But if a drink for you turns you away from Jesus, get away from it. Somebody else can have a drink, because the Bible just says don't get drunk, and they're fine, that's great. But the question is, whatever you are doing, does it cloud your vision of Christ? Does it, does it take you away from your hunger of the word? Does it stop you from praying joyfully and fervently? Listen, what, what basically what James is saying is if you're real, remember keeping it real? If you're real and God is at work in your heart and your life, then you will be striving by his grace and through faith to tame your tongue, to care for the weak, orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Now, I'm, I'm going to close with this, and I really am. But here's the question about James. This is the issue I've always had with James when I was younger in the Lord. Where's the gospel? Because <laughs> James just seems to tear you up. Right? When I went to, I, all we did was read the text, and what did Mary Ellen say? I don't think I want to hear this. But she was just expressing what we were all feeling. Oh, man, this ain't going to be good, right, if we're honest. But th this is what I want to tell you, because it's important for me to close with this. James gives the gospel in shorthand. Remember those days of that old shorthand language? You know, and it's like really succinct. Whereas maybe in Paul's epistles, he will go into great detail about the gospel before he tells you to do something. James, he's to the quick. He's from Jersey. He's going to tell you like it is, and he's short and sweet. And so that's what I want to show you about James. This is how we can have the power to be able to live this way and have this type of religion. 
Um, the key is in chapter 1, verse 18, and in verse 21. Listen, it says this. He, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. How did God, by his grace, choose to give us new birth, which means spiritual life, new life? He did it through what? The word of truth. What's the word of truth? The gospel. Through the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, we heard it, and in the power of the Spirit, what did God do? <laughs> he breathed life into us. We were brand new creatures in Christ. Amen? Well, it shouldn't be shocked to know that it's through that same word, that same means of grace, that we are sanctified, that we become more and more like Jesus. Verse, chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and listen, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Listen, watching your tongue doesn't save you. Helping widows and orphans, that doesn't save you. Trying to keep yourself unspotted from the world, that ain't going to save you. What saves you? The word. The washing, oops, of the word. That's why we come, we hear the word of God preached, because it's through that means of grace, as we just heard that ripping message from James that really purifies our hearts, God is using that to conform us more and more into his image, to enable us to do what he calls us to do, because God, through his new birth, through the new birth, is creating in us a brand new man, a brand new woman, created to be like God. Christ Jesus. And I'll tell you, when he's doing that, it's often really uncomfortable. It's like the potter with the clay, and as he starts sticking his thumb, ow, ooh, ah, ee. So as we're hearing that this morning, we're going, ooch, ah, ee. God knows where to pinch with his word. It's C.S. Lewis's analogy uh, when he talks about how when he comes into our hearts, when Jesus first comes in our hearts, he starts like doing things that we would expect him to do, you know, fixing the leak, maybe fixing a hole, and then all of a sudden he starts knocking walls out, right? He starts doing this huge renovation, and we're like, whoa, we were happy being a cottage. And Jesus is like, oh, no, no, I got to make this a place that I want to live in. That's why what God does, and he does it, through his word. So it's very different than a Nike type of Christianity. Just do it. It's not moralism. It's not legalism. It's the word of God doing its perfect work in, in our hearts and lives in order to enable us by his grace through faith in Jesus to not just be hearers of God's word, but doers also. And we have the mercy. Later on, James says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your word is sharp. It is powerful. It is able to divide bone and marrow, spirit and soul, as it were. We thank you that you love us enough that you've given us this book that we might have reality in our religion that we might be true followers of you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that we come together and we have this time of a powerful transformation as we mix your word by faith, as we believe it, and it does its wonderful work in our hearts and lives. We pray for each of us here, because we represent different churches here this morning, praise you. We pray that as we go back and as we live our lives, even this day forward, 
that by your grace we would be conformed more and more into your image, that the religion we practice would be pure and unspotted and that it would be the kind that you accept and that you smile as we give it through faith in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.